Coming up on the Sark Fighter Podcast. Uh, because there were a number of components that we were hoping to see benefit. And in fact, we um, uh, pretty much hit, hit on all of them. So I, I think that's what has me just really thrilled at this point. The Sark Fighter Podcast brings you the CEO of Atar Pharma with exciting results on a new drug that shows promise in fighting pulmonary sarcoidosis. Even some of the experts, when I've, I've shown them some of the preliminary data, have been um, really impressed. And, and, I, and, I, and I do think that um, exceeding expectations here is something we have done in this trial. Dr. Sanjay Shukla joins me to share all the encouraging results. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hi guys, this is John Carlin, the host of the Sark Fighter Podcast, and I do this podcast to offer my fellow Sark Fighters hope, and I'll tell you what, there is a lot of hope on the table today. Results of a small clinical trial for a drug known as ATAR 1923 have just been released. It's hot off the press, and if everything verifies, it might be the first medication out there to possibly reduce prednisone as a front line of defense against sarcoidosis. This looks extremely promising, and we are going to dissect it today in very easy-to-understand terms, don't worry, on the Sark Fighter podcast. I'll be talking with ATAR's president and CEO, Sanjay Shukla, MD, MS, in just a few minutes. But before we get to that discussion, I just got to tell you, as always, the official Sark Fighter song is Zombie by Mark Steyer and his band, the White Hot Lizards from Alberta, Canada. Mark is also a Sark Fighter, and his story is the story behind the lyrics that he wrote. And you can hear you can hear him and more about the song in episode 12. Occasionally, I will play the entire song for you at the end of an episode. I did that, I know, as recently as episode 41. So you might just want to go back and give it a listen. It's actually a, a very catchy tune. I call this the Sark Fighter Podcast because I'm fighting Sark and so are you, whether you are a patient, a researcher, a caregiver, pharmaceutical representative, as we have today with Dr. Shukla, and all of us gather here in the sarcoidosis space. So many people say they don't know anybody else who has sarcoidosis. They felt like they were all alone. Even people in populated areas like New Jersey are, are writing in or are participating in the show and saying, you know what, I don't know anybody else with sarcoidosis. So at least with the podcast, you can hear the person's voice. You can, you know, a forum is great. And there's a lot of good forums out there. But with the, with the podcast, you hear the person's voice, you hear them speaking, you, you hear my back and forth with them, and you get to know that person uh, a little bit, and you, and you know where they're coming from. And uh, what I've heard over and over is that just really helps people deal with sarcoidosis. I normally release the podcast every other Monday, and uh, that has continued to be the case. And uh God willing, and the creek don't rise, as they say, we'll continue to do that. And as I'm speaking today, my trusty dog, Dougal, the boxer, is curled up at my feet. And I have to tell you that Dougal was a uh, foster puppy that we took in uh, during the pandemic, and he just never left. So um, that makes dog number three for the Carlin family, but Dougal makes my life so much better. 
All right, I've got to tell you that I've been listening to a recorded interview with Sanjay uh, that he did with investors in Atire 23 who, you know, they put their money behind this research. And so he was filling them in in a publicly uh, in a recorded forum, which is which is public facing information. And so I've been listening to this as he reported out the results, and then they had the opportunity to ask him questions. And then uh, I've also been reading a transcript of those conversations. And I've been doing that in order to get up to speed on this and to help break it down for you and to ask good questions or questions that you would want to ask if you were first hearing this information. So um, I can I want to take a step back. First of all, it was September 2020 when I first interviewed uh, Dr. Shukla Sanjay here on the Sark Fighter podcast. That was episode 17. And at that point, this podcast, the Sark Fighter podcast, was just a few months old. And and he came on. Uh, this was a new idea. It was a new concept. Yes, we had the, the backing and support of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. But Dr. Shukla said, you know what? I want people to know that we are putting this out there, and I want you to know that this is blind research, and we don't know what's coming back, but this is what we hope come back. Hope comes back. And so that was back in episode 17, and I appreciated his candor back then. And uh, he thought that the drug had promise, and that he would have more to say when they finished phase 1B, 2A of this clinical trial process. And that basically is where they give the drug to actual patients in different doses. And some patients will receive a placebo or a pill that just looks like there's just not a pill. In this case, it's actually an IV. Uh, but it's medication that just looks like the drug. Uh, but those persons actually don't get any of it. And then uh, they also uh, give different doses, different size doses to other people in the test and each you know each group gets and Sanjay will talk about this five milligrams three milligrams or one milligram of the 1923 and there are remember uh, there are currently no drugs that have been developed specifically to fight sarcoidosis and prednisone is the first line of defense uh, and you know that they have Remicade, they have methotrexate in my case I also took a chemo drug called cytoxin I now take Humira, but all of these drugs are off-label, as in they are usually given to a patient with uh, other illnesses, and but they have been shown to have some effectiveness in fighting SARC, which means they are usually, honestly, only marginally effective or not at all, uh, or they are effective but only for a small percentage of the sarcoidosis population. And of course, insurance companies are hesitant to pay for these drugs because they're quote-unquote off-label. So now there's a handful of companies out there, including ATAR, which are working on therapies that specifically target sarcoidosis. And they do receive funding in part from the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and, of course, their investors and others. And there are uh, a lot of investors uh, who are now getting behind the momentum that's been generated by these recent findings here with ATAR 1923. But let's face it, here in the United States, we have a, a we do have a robust pharmaceutical uh, economy. We have some wonderful companies that are doing amazing work, and they are breaking through all the time in many different fields, not just sarcoidosis. 
But these companies do have to make some money or they wouldn't risk the, the years of research and the millions of dollars it takes for them to look for these drugs. And you're seeing how long it takes just with this drug. So um, you, you, get a, you get a feeling that uh, it, it is expensive and it does take a long time and there has to be some reward for the risk that they're taking. So having said all of that, I can say that this is some of the most amazing information about a new drug to fight sarcoidosis that you probably will have ever heard. And I say that with a great deal of confidence. I want to back that up just a little bit. These are two quotes from the news release that went out to the public, and this has been published. Uh, The first quote is from a man that if you've been in the sarcoidosis arena very long, you've probably heard of Dr. Robert Boffman, professor of medicine and a pulmonologist at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. And Dr. Boffman says of these results, quote, I am very impressed by this study, which is one of the best that I have seen conducted in sarcoidosis, a patient population that is highly underserved by current treatment options. And he goes on to say, importantly, ATIRE 1923 demonstrated an improvement in several indicators of quality of life, a high priority for patients by a much larger margin than I would expect in a trial of this size and duration. So again, that's Dr. Boffman. Now, the next quote is from uh, Dr. Culver, uh, Dr. Daniel Culver, who is uh, the chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine and director of diffuse uh, parachemal lung disease at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, And I'm not sure I said that word properly, Uh, but he is a part of my care team. I actually have never met him. He is the sort of the the person who backs up the two doctors that I do have um, at uh, Dr. Ribeiro and Dr. Moss at Cleveland. But whenever they make a decision about my treatment, Dr. Culver is involved. So I guess it's curious that I haven't met him, but it just hasn't worked out on the times that I've traveled to Cleveland. The point is, is that he's also a huge name in the fight against sarcoidosis. And his quote is, the dose response and consistent results across almost every endpoint are remarkable findings and as good as could be expected in this small study. The ability to taper patients off steroids while controlling disease symptoms in ATIRE 1923 treatment groups is particularly compelling and supports advancement of ATIRE 1923 into the next phase of development. So that's Dr. Daniel Culver, Dr. Culver at the Cleveland Clinic. So coming up, I'll have my interview with Dr. Shukla. I want to ask him to explain how 1923 has shown all this potential to make patients' lives better on not one, but at least two fronts, how the study worked. I'll ask him exactly uh, why everybody is so excited about the results and to to, uh, have him document that even further beyond the two quotes that you've just heard. And believe me, it it goes much further. Um, I want to I want to ask him what 1923 does when it gets inside the body that it's been so remarkable, and then uh, we'll be talking about what happens next with the development of the drug. And of course, most importantly, this is what we all want to know when it might be available to Sark patients. So that's coming up next here on the Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie. 
Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. And joining me now is Sanjay Shukla uh, with A-Tire Pharma, which has just, as you heard me say, uh, reported some fantastic results on a new drug. And Sanjay, welcome to the Sark Fighter podcast. Thank you, John. I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here today to talk to you about uh, uh, some of the work that we just uh, put out. So the new drug is uh, ATIRE 1923, and you and I have spoken about this on a previous podcast. In fact, I was looking, it was uh, just exactly a year ago to the week that we first talked about this, and, and you were beginning the next phase of your clinical trial process. Why don't you give us a broad overview of what you've just reported out as you finished that first clinical trial? Well, this was a this was a trial, as you uh, highlighted here, that we were currently engaged in, uh, that we were engaged in for several years. Uh, it was a patient trial where we were looking to enroll about thirty six pulmonary sarcoidosis patients. We completed uh, that trial uh, late last year, beginning of this year, and uh, we just put out the data from 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 that trial. Uh, the data was uh, really. Um, uh, in our eyes, uh, impressive, outstanding. Uh, we're thrilled with the results. Um, and, and, I, and I do think that um, we're really excited about progressing the program uh, because there were a number of components that we were hoping to see benefit. And in fact, we um, uh, pretty much hit, hit on all of them. So I, I think that's what has me just really thrilled at this point. At some point, uh, in some points of this, I think uh, it's fair to say you exceeded expectations in terms of uh, finding uh, a new drug to fight sarcoidosis. Is that a fair uh, assessment? I think it's very fair. I have to be honest that, you know, some of the findings even surprised me. Uh, I, I felt as though we had a very um, good therapy that could be um, uh, useful to sarcoidosis patients, uh, but not only myself, but even some of the experts, when I've, I've shown them some of the preliminary data, have been um, really impressed, and and I and I and I do think that um, exceeding expectations here is something we have done in this trial. All right, so uh, ATIR nineteen twenty three. One of the things that you are uh, trying to accomplish with this is to reduce people's reliance on prednisone. Prednisone is the first line of defense. Something like 95% of all sarcoidosis patients uh, start out with, and many stay on prednisone, and it has all kinds of terrible um, problems that, that we have discussed at length here on the podcast. So tell me how uh, this compound is, um, is reducing people's reliance on prednisone. Yeah, John, that, that is a, a great summary of really how we thought about um, addressing um, sarcoidosis because, 
the available therapy, as we all know, is really quite toxic um, and, and maybe even just poorly understood with regards to how much of a burden it puts on, on patients. It's a, it's a bad choice to have here to be able to say, I need to be on this um, toxic medication to, to live my life. So one of the key components of our drug was, could we in fact alleviate some of that steroid burden? Could, could we be a type of therapy that um, patients could reduce steroids. It was one of our key objectives in the trial. Can we reduce steroids and can folks manage sarcoidosis better with 1923, which we believe, and I think we've now shown is a safer alternative to prednisone. Uh, and I'm, you know, that was, that was a key objective. Uh, really, really thrilled to report that when we looked at our, our data and our drug, uh, we um, substantially impacted the reliance uh, prednisone. Um, uh, we, we really declined uh, 50, 60% reductions in that prednisone dose. Uh, and in our highest dose group, which was five milligrams per kilogram of ATYR, ATIR 1923, we showed um, a 58% reduction in the amount of steroids you need. So for example, if you are taking um, you know, 10 or 15 milligrams a day, sometimes for years, we've been able to say in this short trial, now you can throw away five, seven, eight milligrams of prednisone that you're, every day, and you won't need that. Uh, so I think it's a fantastic step forward to say, we're removing some of that toxicity that folks have to actually deal with every day. And by replacing it with our therapy, uh, it's, it's really... Um, uh, um, a positive benefit. That, now that's amazing. Again, this isn't this isn't a small group, and I know we'll talk by the end of the podcast about um, proving this even further. But um, that is that's amazing. And some patients were able to get off prednisone altogether. Is that correct? Yes. A very another just outstanding finding in our trial that we had. Uh, three patients out of nine in our highest um, uh, dose cohort, which means the, the group that received the highest dose of our drug, uh, were able to get off. Again, it's a small trial, but to get a third of the patients completely off their steroids. Um, these are patients that um, have been sometimes taking steroids for five, six, seven years and have been trying to whittle down even one milligram. Uh, this was a just fantastic finding. We were hoping to see uh, maybe one or two folks if, if, if we saw something there to get completely off steroids, uh, but to see um, a third of that group, I'm really excited to test it further <clears throat> because um, as you can imagine, there's uh, th this could potentially help tens of thousands of sarcoidosis patients get off steroid dose, steroid completely. So now you're talking about our therapy could be a potential steroid replacement um, this is the first hint of that. Uh, and I think um, no amount of steroid, as I've been taught by experts, uh, is, is really a safe dose. Uh, so, so I think this, this was just a great, another great unexpected finding uh, in our trial. Yeah. And, and, and I, I listened to your conversation, uh, which was recorded with investors as you reported this out. And, and I know that you were asked, um, you know, you got three out of nine. 
And potentially it could have been greater. And the doctor wasn't really the, the, whoever the provider was for these patients, wasn't really putting his foot on the gas to, uh, to, to see if they could accelerate people off steroids. Um, But, but for three, it just happened to work out. But my takeaway from listening to that conversation is that it potentially could have even been more. Is that fair? Well, we, we, we left it to the experts to a certain degree in this protocol that if folks were doing well, they had the option to go down further. So a, a huge component of our trial was let's take everybody down to at least five milligrams. So if you started in the trial, you could come in anywhere between 10 and 25 milligrams. So right off the bat, you're getting at least a 50% reduction. Say you come in at 10. Based on my observations, um, we, we saw some folks at 15 or 20, you know, get down to five. You feel great knocking down 10, 15 milligrams a day off that. Um, it might be something in the protocol where we get in the next trial we run, we get a little bit more prescriptive with the, the experts to say, let's try harder to get to zero. This is a new therapy. Uh, I rely on experts. I'm not a pulmonologist. I'm a clinician, but I'm not a pulmonologist. I rely on their expertise. They know the patients best. But I also think after this data is disseminated more in the medical population, you might see more receptivity because now we've created some data and some evidence where people can look at that and say, okay, I've seen ATAR's initial data. Maybe I was even a, a primary investigator in the trial. Now I'm a little bit more um, uh, of a believer to like put the, put the, put the pedal down, as you said, you know, I, I trust the engine here that we're going to be able to go a little bit harder. Um, and, and I get it. This is the way drugs should be developed in a quick, careful, safe manner. Um, and perhaps maybe some of those folks who, who, uh, were happy with that 10 or 15 milligram improvement, um, might say, well, let, let me just try to go all the way in the next trial. Yeah. Well, somebody who has had two big rounds of prednisone with as many as 80 milligrams a day um, and having that just completely change and, and uh, ruin my life. This is, this is definitely news to celebrate. So um, now there's, there's something out there that I want to talk about, and I'm going to explain it to listeners called FVC, which stands for forced vital capacity. And basically what that is, is how much air you can breathe out of your lungs at a given time. And we're looking at a treatment at at this point for pulmonary sarcoidosis. So um, the FVC is, is not something that the average person walks around thinking about, but doctors measure it. And you found improvement in people's lungs as measured by this improvement in FVC. Can you tell us about that? Sure, John. And you've explained it really well. It is a uh, objective measure that doctors, pulmonologists use to look at your lung function or your, how are your lungs performing? And as many of your listeners are aware with pulmonary sarcoidosis, you really have trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, things of that nature. Those are the symptoms. But when you look at actually the lung function, forced vital capacity is a measure in which how are your lungs performing? Are you able to move more air in and out of your lungs? This is a, 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 a important functional clue that experts and docs look at. 
Uh, we were looking at this in our trial. What we expected is maybe a slight improvement. You know, that this is something that we weren't necessarily banking on um, a, a, a large signal, if you will. We wanted to make sure it certainly didn't worsen poor spinal capacity. Uh, but we also had some rather un, un, rather remarkable and really unexpected findings with forced vital capacity. We saw improvements in lung function that were above and beyond what docs would consider to be significant. And it's a significant improvement that they might have expected over the course of a year. In our trial, in six months, you are seeing percentage improvements that experts would consider fantastic uh, if, if, if this was done over the course of a year. And, and you know, one expert said, this is working rather fast to actually get people's lungs performing better. So that has me really excited to think about this uh, a therapy that not only is first off reducing steroids, but you're also seeing in this important objective measure that docs look at, you now are also seeing lungs performing better. So to me, it's, you know, those two things, you start to stack those two things together. Um, it, it, it's really, it's really a, a powerful signal. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to show my ignorance here, I think, but I want to ask this question because my understanding of most of the drugs that pulmonary patients take, their job is to just slow the worsening of their condition. If I understand correctly, and your drug not only slowed the worsening, but crossed that line into improvement. Is that, did I say that right? 100%. The, the, the medications that have been approved in lung disease, these sort of interstitial lung diseases, typically have been approved based on their ability to slow down the worsening, which, which is important, especially in diseases, for example, like IPF. But they have rarely shown if and I can't, I can think of maybe only one instance in the trial where they showed some improvement and that was nominal. Our therapy, we wanted to make sure it didn't worsen. So we were stunned that it's not only, certainly not doing that, but you're seeing benefit. You're seeing improvement of lung function at levels that um, those that other therapies were approved by the FDA, uh, you know, two and a half percent less worsening got some of those therapies approved. We're showing two and a half percent more than that, 3.3% actually in our highest dose improvement. Those numbers may not mean a whole lot to, to patients, but when docs see that, they say, wow, you not only are staying well ahead of those placebo patients, but the folks on your therapy are seeing some positive, substantial positive benefit. Um, and, and I think that is something that really uh, was also, as I said, very notable in our trial. So let's, so, so now we're talking about clinical numbers and so forth, but I just want to ask you straight up, did people feel better when, when all that stuff happened? Were they just the walking around every day, eating breakfast, feeling better? Yeah. And that's, you know, in many ways for me, um, not being an expert, if you will, I, I always, I always look at that first, you know, we can say the drug had all these effects. It got down steroids. You start to see things on force vital capacity, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of folks just say, look, is this going to actually impact my life? 
And we looked at a number of important symptoms that patients deal with, uh, uh, shortness of breath, cough, fatigue, uh, just their general health, um, looking at different surveys over the course of the six months. And there we also had a really, really positive benefit that our higher doses saw, again, substantial improvements in the ability to control everyone's day-to-day fatigue, their shortness of breath, their cough, uh, their general health. Um, All of these measures trended all in the positive direction. And what I'm really proud of is these, these, these improvements were not subtle. They were, we were using symptom scores and measures that have been well validated for sometimes 20 years. And the docs look at the level of improvement that is being reported. And again, they, they, they were surpassing levels that they would consider just sort of artifactual or just sort of, just sort of within the noise that, yeah, people are feeling better. We are seeing levels that, not to get too technical, are beyond what a, a doctor would say is the minimally clinical important difference. So when you start to basically say, oh, it improves your fatigue, it's doing so at a threshold of, 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 of this symptom score that is, again, something that an expert will look at and say, wow, that's actually happening fast. And this was anecdotally what we heard in our trial, that patients were really happy with the therapy and they were performing really well. But it was really gratifying to see that also translate some of these other findings we saw that in all of those measures, we saw um, what, I'm just, what I'm saying is substantial benefit. Uh, and these are the things that, you know, if, if, if you're living with this condition, um, you're thinking about every day, you know, can, you know, am I going to breathe better? Um, am I, am I going to cough, cough less? Am I going to be less fatigued? Uh, these are really important measures. We're digging into other things like you know, your, your mood, your insomnia, a lot of those steroid effects I expect to also be dealt with. If we can get people off steroids, we should also, it just makes sense, you should see positive benefit. Um, you know, maybe if we run a longer trial, we're even talking about all that weight gain that you get with, it's, it's early on, but that's something that we could look at, you know, long-term because we know that if you're on steroids for years and years, you just, it also wrecks your, you know, metabolism. So these were the measures that we looked at um, and it correlated, you know, really, really well uh, to, to, especially in our highest, again, our highest dose had some real positive benefit with those symptoms. Right. So I just, so you've mentioned the highest dose several times. You had what, 37 people, I think in this program, and some of them received the placebo some of them received one milligram of 1923, some received three, and some received five. And if you could just compare those results for me, did, did, the, did the people who got the most medicine see the best result? Essentially, that's correct. That's called a dose response. So of those 37 patients, 12 patients uh, received placebo. Uh, and that, you know, you know, first of all, that's a really important um, element I want to point out. These patients really contributed to this data, uh, knowing that they had a 30, you know, 33% chance or, or so of, of getting placebo. Uh, so I'm extremely grateful and thankful to those patients who frankly tolerated um, 
maybe being made unwell for this period, but it allowed us to really then tease out these effects. Um, we then had essentially about eight patients or so, give or take a patient here or there, in each of those treatment groups that you pointed out, one milligram, three milligrams, and five milligrams. Uh, this is a, a drug that is administered once a month through a one-hour IV infusion. And what we saw is essentially, as you might expect, placebo patients seem to you know, decline a little bit. You see worsening of uh, symptoms and even forced vital capacity. Our one milligram dose seemed to be what I would call subtherapeutic. Maybe some things happening there, but it kind of looks similar to placebo. So we didn't really see too much move, maybe a couple things here and there that I can look at and say, well, that's good. But then when we got to three milligrams, that's when we started to really see that improvement with lung function, symptoms, steroid reduction. Then when we looked at five, it was even better than three. So that is called a dose response. So that is something that as you can look at things and say, do you see a dose response? Is the highest dose offered? Because then you can, you, can, you can imagine, okay, you can attribute some of that positive benefit to the drug and the drug effects. What I especially like is we saw this dose response, five being better than three and three being better than one, across all of the things we evaluated. Things like forced vital capacity, which makes the docs really interested. Uh, steroid reduction, which was what I was really interested in. More, more and better reductions in the highest dose. And then lastly, symptoms, as I just talked about. Also, all those things, cough, fatigue, shortness of breath, performing much better in five, good in three, and three better than one. So th this is lined up... Um, uh, really, really nicely for us. And it gives us a lot of confidence in these, in the uh, drug activity signal we see. And we call that a, in clinical trial terms, a, a dose response. Dem and now we've demonstrated what is called proof of concept. Like we, we actually have a drug that's active here. Yeah, that's, that's just fantastic news. And um, I'm just, I'm so excited about this. Uh, on behalf of all the sarcoidosis community who's listening. So, so when we have sarcoidosis in the lungs or anywhere in our bodies, um, you have this uh, immune response where the body is sending white blood cells, which then become globules to a spot in your body that doesn't really need it. And when that happens in your lungs, uh, it basically clogs up your breathing. Fair? Essentially, yes, that's okay. fair. So how does 1923 undo that? What, what's it doing in our bodies that, you know, that makes it such a uh, roto-rooter? <laughs> so, yeah, I like that. I like yeah. I remember I remember the roto-rooter com commercials. Right. In, uh, yeah. Um, so I think we do know that, that these, these clumps, as you point out, develop in different organ systems. And sarcoidosis... 90% of the patients get these in the lungs. Um, uh, and sometimes just not only in the lungs, it can also be in other organs, but most patients see these clumps in the lungs. What those clumps do beyond just um, being things that are really, um, you know, targets there and, 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 and basically they shouldn't be in that organ system. They create a, a target of inflammation. And, it's, and your body goes into a state where it says, hey, I got to clear this out. You know, this shouldn't be here. 
what that does is it creates a cascade of a lot of inflammation. So inflammation is what, why patients are given steroids. You got to control all that. There's an aberrant response of our own body's immune system here. We don't know why, but that's what's happening here to respond to this, this clump that shouldn't be there, which also we don't know why that's happening. So what our drug really is doing and what we saw for many years is it had some powerful ability to really calm down immune cells. It was effectively a uh, immune policeman, if you will, that it, that it basically said, hey, you know what, guys, get out of here. Like, we, we got to resolve this. And we saw it in particular with certain types of cells, T cells, macrophages. These are the types of cells involved in trying to basically resolve something here in, in this disease, but might be actually contributing to a, these patients feeling sick. So our drug we saw early on had some really nice effects. It's basically resetting that sort of inflammatory response. We, we followed that up with obviously um, testing it further in, in, in more um, animal type models. And we, we felt really good about, okay, this is a, a good anti-inflammatory. Then we progressed looking at healthy volunteers and you know that showed the drug is safe. So we believed that this was going to be a really potent um, immune resolver, if you will. We call it an immunomodulator, but really resolving some of that, that sort of aberrant inflammation that you see in the lungs. Um, and we thought we would do a better job and a safer job than steroids. So that was, that was a real premise here because we also knew that um, what, what patients are taking to control this inflammation is toxic. So if we can do a better job at addressing that and not have toxicity, well, then we think that's what, you know, could be a really game-changing type of therapy uh, for patients. So this trial was very important for us to test a lot of theories. Um, and as I said, we're just thrilled that much of the concepts we debated and the objectives of, these of this trial read out um, in many ways, exceeding, as you said, our expectations. Okay, so uh, so so it's it's working. So so now you've you've measured nineteen twenty three in your group of thirty seven people, and everything looks promising. But it's not like the FDA is going to say, "All right, go for it, start marketing this drug." You still got to do another test, right? So what happens next? Correct, correct. So this is this was a, a you know essentially a phase two trial, which is what that means is. That's really the trial that is you run in patients to see if the drug is actually doing anything. And I think we squarely can say confidently, yes, it is. It is doing something and it's, and it's really beneficial. <clears throat> but statistically, you have to be able to uh, what is called power a trial. You, know, you have to basically say, was this now let's look at this in a larger group of patients. So you see companies move into a phase three trial where you basically try to replicate what you saw in a small amount of patients, in this case, 37, in maybe hundreds of patients. And then if you can do that, statistically, you can show that this is just not an anomaly. Uh, so where we are now is gearing up for a much larger phase three trial uh, that will be something that I will, with my team, negotiate and plan with the FDA. And we want to move fast. 
because patients can't afford to wait. They can't afford to wait a day. Uh, I think with the signals that we have produced here, we have already generated a lot of interest worldwide uh, uh, from, from experts. I was on, on the phone this morning with someone in the Netherlands who really wants to sort of get involved with, with this next trial. And, you know, we're going to do things in a very, you know, ethical and, 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 a, and a, you know, ca a careful manner working with worldwide regulators uh, because we've now got to prove it in a larger number of patients. And if we're able to do that, I think we are, we are on the way to uh, potentially having the first therapy to get approved in sarcoidosis in maybe ever, you know, I, I, ever. I, I, I think, I think, I think this ever, is, I think this ever was, there, there isn't anything right now that's been developed just for sarcoidosis or because of sarcoidosis. Right. Right. Which is really, you know, our mission at a company like a tires, we, we look at how can we take our, um, our uh, technology, if you will, and um, position it in areas where, you know, patients really need something better, you know, and that, 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 that was always my idea um, uh, when, when, we, when we launched this program. I, I think we have a real opportunity here uh, to, to make a major impact in an area where um, I know firsthand, you know, with, with the few um, instances I've been exposed to sarcoidosis patients in my short clinical practice, uh, it, it, it's something that, you know, we can do better here. We can do better than steroids and, and, and let's really see if this, let's test it. Uh, let's make sure it's safe. Um, and let's also make sure the things we see improve also are meaningful uh, to patients. We talk about really trying to create meaningful medicines at ATIRE. Uh, and I think we, we, we might have someone here. Yeah. Uh, boy, let's hope so. So now, um, when you and I are speaking in September of 2021, you, you're going to report these findings. Everything that we're talking about now will be uh, examined in much greater detail in medical journals and so forth. Will you do that reporting while simultaneously starting the next trial or wh how, what order, how does this work in the medical world? Yeah, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no resting now, you know, there's not now, now we got, we got to move. So yes, we will look to get more of the data, all of the data fully out there in hopefully a major medical journal or even a symposia at the next, you know, medical conference, but in parallel immediately, ATIRE is taking steps to move forward with a, a larger trial. We want to demonstrate and validate all of these findings. Uh, so we are um, going to be um, um, aggressively moving forward to talk to, as I said, the FDA, but also even other worldwide agencies. We have a partner in Japan, uh, Curin Pharmaceuticals, that is chomping at the bit to uh, start the, using our therapy in a trial over there, those experts um, would like to actually uh, test 1923 in uh, Japanese sarcoidosis patients. So we will work um, in conjunction with now worldwide leaders and, and regulators to start a worldwide trial. Uh, I think I would anticipate this being at a minimum in the US, Europe, and Japan. Uh, potentially other countries uh, could get interested. Um, and, and the goal here would be to enroll, um, as I said, potentially several hundred patients, um, and then hopefully be able to see 
if you see similar findings than what we saw in this 37 patient trial, uh, then, then, you know, we, we, we could potentially be on our way to uh, an improved therapy. Yeah, that's great. So I, I, I had a couple other questions that I'll work in, but since we're on it right now, when do you think ATAR 1923 might be something you can walk into your doctor's office and be prescribed? Yeah, that's, that's the key question here. Right. And I wish I had a, um, a, a, a really tight answer and, and also uh, an answer that um, is, is something like, Hey, you know, right away next year, it's going to take time. We're going to have to, it's, it's a journey to develop a drug. We are going to start this trial next year, but as it's a larger trial, it can take several years to enroll that trial, administer our therapy, test it. It might be a trial that is, is a year long. And then you have to read out the results and then you have to go back to the regulator. So it's, it can be, I, I, I know it can be a frustrating process, but this is the, this is the way you ethically develop a therapy carefully uh, and cogently to do it this way. So, you know, our projections are we would start a trial next year. Uh, it can take uh, several years to enroll and run that trial. Um, you know, I, 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 want to be in a situation where um, maybe in that 2024 timeframe, uh, 2025, uh, to be able to sort of have a, um, a an important data set that, that justifies approval. Uh, I know that might not be what some of the patients listening to this want to hear, but I can tell you this. Sometimes drugs, it can take more than 10 years to get approved. Uh, we're more we're more than halfway past that. You know, I tell my team when we swam out, you know, on this journey, um, you know, I can't now see where I left, but I can see the shore ahead of me. And having done this with some other therapies, we're more than halfway there. And I also think this was just a major point here where we had to show something, and it was, uh, as I said, um, it, it was it's a major inflection point. In yes, there is a drug. So uh, the six or seven years we've been working on this, that's behind us. Now we can actually, I think, as I said, see that that sort of shore in front of us. And I'm going to keep swimming as hard as I can to get there um, as quickly as I can. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm a former marathon runner, so I would have used a marathon instead of a swim, but that's okay. But I can also tell I can also tell you that when you run a marathon, um, halfway is not 13 miles out of the 26. Halfway is 20 because that's when you tend to run out of steam. I hope you don't hit something at 20 that you don't anticipate. No, no, I, you, you're right about that. Yes, I mean, I think I'm I am invigorated. Uh, the team is more is really invigorated when you see data like this, and I also think the worldwide medical expert community is getting invigorated. Uh, and that's all going to help us um, uh, to, to potentially push through those last six to 12 miles, right? You need, you need to have that, you need to have that ahead of you to sort of fuel you to, to, to get to that end. And, you know, we're, we have a great team in San Diego um, working really hard to now um, power up, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to that station with the uh, power bars that you like to, when you run by John and, you know, uh -huh. we're, we're, we're going to keep on trucking here and, 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 and keep moving forward. 
That is awesome. So now I, I'm just curious, and you've, you've tested this in the lungs, but I have kind of a two-pronged question. Um, is there any possibility, like, for instance, I have neurosarcoidosis, but I am treated by a pulmonologist because he's the guy that's most familiar with SARC. So is, is there any possibility that it could work in other parts of the body as well as it does in the lungs? There is a possibility. I, I can't say for certain because we are testing it in the lungs. Um, I can tell you in the next trial, we may have the ability to sort of open the tent to, if you do have say pulmonary, but you have other manifestations, extra pulmonary disease in say the heart, for example, right. there might be the opportunity to include a broader subset of patients. Because again, once you start to demonstrate safety and you move things along, regulators say, okay, how can you do this? Uh, how can we impact the most amount of patients here? So some of this will be, that will be a discussion with the regulators. I certainly would postulate that if one of the major drivers of disease are these clumps in your lungs, well, maybe over time, um, you also start to see improvements in extra pulmonary disease. Um, but I can't say for certain, John, because we haven't tested it. Sure, um, sure. But, but I think it's a great sign that the major, what's called phenotype, the major manifestation in sarcoidosis itself is pulmonary. Well, then, you know, I would hope that uh, patients with extra pulmonary disease would also start to maybe see some benefit. But I haven't tested that. I haven't looked at those patients specifically in our current trial. Um, uh, but it is something in the next protocol that we may be able to, for example, enroll folks with, uh, say, cardiac sarcoidosis um, and, 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 and see if their heart function improves, see if their, um, uh, their imaging of their heart you know, looks less um, problematic, less inflamed. So that's something that I'm quickly working with experts to determine the best course to, um, as, as um, I said, include more of a, a tent of, of folks who, who, who need better therapies. Yeah. And, and then how about people who have problems in their lungs and it's not caused by sarcoidosis, but it has a similar manifestation? Any, any potential there to, to maybe help with some other diseases? I mean, every, all the drugs that we take for SARC were developed for other reasons, and they just happen to also sometimes help SARC patients. Absolutely. I mean, I think right now, those other pulmonary experts who may treat, for example, a scleroderma patient that now has lung disease, you know, that's a another related form of inflammatory lung disease, interstitial lung disease. And, you know, broadly speaking, there's maybe 200 of these diseases, but there's three or four major buckets of interstitial lung disease, one of which is sarcoidosis. But there's other large areas of interstitial lung disease. For example, if you have some form of scleroderma or rheumatoid arthritis, it can start systemically, but then unfortunately some of those folks could have lung damage and the damage doesn't present in these clumps, but it's the same sort of symptomology. You have trouble breathing. You have a lot of inflammation in your lungs, hard to breathe, cough, fatigue. And then what do you get? Steroids. Um, there's other forms of, of um, interstitial lung disease, you know, things like something called hypersensitivity pneumonitis, where you can get exposed to sometimes environmental agents that 
you know, cause your lungs to react really aggressively and poorly uh, to, to these sort of environmental agents uh, that are sometimes in certain occupations, for example. Uh, what happens? Your lungs start to become more inflamed, maybe you become fibrotic. What do they rely on? These patients have to take steroids. So all of those conditions are areas where we can now look at and maybe potentially even benefit a patient who has, say, scleroderma, who also has interstitial lung disease, um, because our hypothesis on how we basically modulate and control lung inflammation could readily be applied in those conditions where, again, steroids are maybe the only thing that, that docs can, can reach for to help those folks. Great. Again, it's very early. We don't know, but um, wouldn't it be wonderful if, um, if sarcoidosis was helping somebody else instead of somebody else helping sarcoidosis? <laughs> Just in, yeah, in yeah. very broad terms. Yeah. So now I know, um, like, for instance, when I was taking um, Remicade, which was a, an IV drug that I took for a time, my body eventually started um, building up antibodies. Um, so when my liver enzymes became elevated and my care team said, we've got to get you off of this and onto something else, is, is that something that you've been able to test for in your limited run so far? Or, um, you know, is there any downside with respect to your body building up resistance? So this is a, a very important question. And it's something that we assayed, we tested and looked for in our trial. It's a, it's, it's almost a requirement that the FDA requires that, hey, let's, we just need to know if the body is creating these sort of um, what are known as anti-drug antibodies, because that can happen sometimes. I'm happy to report we did not see a signal of that in our trial. And remember, uh, our patients are receiving our therapy every month. And in our, in our trial, it was for six months, so six doses. So that was an important safety component in our trial. Um, and sometimes if you develop these antibodies, they can you know, sometimes not be problematic. They can just be sort of just hanging out there and they don't impact you. Uh, what I can tell you in our trial is we did not see a concerning signal of anti-drug antibodies. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, portends well for us in the future. It's always something you have to keep an eye on, however, when you use these sort of therapies and which is why Remicade is an approved therapy also didn't have too many concerning elements to get approved. But then if you're a doctor, you have to still follow it because you can have a patient that, you know, develops an adverse reaction in that manner. And, uh, and you have to monitor things like that. So this is, this will be an active monitoring for our next therapy, but I can tell you in this trial of these 37 patients, um, we, we sailed clear of, of any concerns with anti-drug antibodies thus far. Great. So, so you really didn't see any major side effects from 1923? No, I mean, I think that's another great thing to be proud of is, you know, with all these great effects we're being talking about, you got to make sure the drug is safe. Um, and from my analysis, our team's analysis, um, we really did not see uh, any real concerns from a safety and what's called tolerability standpoint. Um, the, 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 the sort of things we see are actually consistent with just your, with sarcoidosis, with pulmonary sarcoidosis. You know, people reporting cough 
and shortness of breath, things like that. Um, but of course, you can imagine you see you saw more of that in the placebo population. So we're reporting everything here. And just in the same way where you want to say, hey, I'd like to see a drug with a dose response with five being better than three and three being better than one and one being better than placebo in, in, with regards to some sort of activity. You want to kind of almost see the opposite when you think about safety. You want to see the things, the bad things more in the placebo group. And largely speaking, it's a small trial, but largely speaking, we see that. We don't see spikes of anything weird in the treated patients versus placebo patients. And anything you do see is attributed to, it's not related to the drug. You know, it's- It's, it's related to the disease. Mostly just related to the disease. So it's one of these things to say, okay, this has been collected, but that's fine. You know, this is not something that you see um, a huge spike of worsening. I just told you cough and fatigue, things like that improved. So you can imagine that if we did see some of that, well, it makes sense that if the placebo patients were being taken down on steroids, you're going to see things there. But overall, the safety profile is, um, is the trajectory of the safety is, 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 is good. Uh, and, I'm, you know, that's one thing that the FDA in particular in a phase two trial, you got to make sure you have that fine. Your drug is active, but no new, no concerning safety signals. It's really important that we have that box checked. Sometimes that's overlooked because people want to focus on the activity, but as a drug developer um, and someone who's worked in clinical trials quite a bit, sometimes drugs with fantastic findings, you encounter something new and, 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 and prickly from a, from a safety point of view. Uh, and we don't want that to occur because patients shouldn't have to then have to deal with some, some safety manifestation and make that trade-off. Uh, we want to make sure this drug is safe um, all through um, the development and even after. Right. And, and you and I have had this conversation before uh, during a panel discussion, but I'll just, I think it's a good, before we wrap up, a good, a good thing to point out. Um, you're on the record as saying that if prednisone was introduced, because it's been around for decades, but if it was introduced and discovered just today and going through this process, it would never be approved, right? Never. No, no. You, you would look at those early animal studies and see all the things it did to rodents uh, with uh, weight gain and irritability and, you know, cardiovascular effects and, and it would, it would, uh, and, 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 you know, muscle wasting and all that would, would be readily understood. And they would say, okay, we're done. We're not, it's not going to be approved. So my, my real, my viewpoint here, and I think I'm going to be right and uh, I won't be around, but whether it's, maybe I'll be around, but you know, 50, 100, 150 years from now, we'll be reading in medical textbooks that, you know, they used to use this sort of poison. I call it poison because I, I think it is poisonous over time. Uh, and this is what we used to use. And, and um, what were we thinking? You know, and, and this was something I said on that panel. Um, and I said it more lightheartedly, but it's true. It is true that if you're taking, whether you're taking five or 50 milligrams there are deleterious effects to start to steroids that, um, you know, again, I'll use that same refrain. We do, we need to do better. We need to do better and, and have a better alternative uh, rather than steroids. So let's put a bow on this phase. What one B two A clinical trials of uh, ATAR 1923 have shown promise 
And if you would just sort of qualify and quantify what this might mean for the sarcoidosis community and wrapping it up. Sure. I, I think we have shown um, substantial improvement in objective and subjective measures. Uh, we have seen um, uh, substantial improvement in symptoms, lung function, ability to uh, take uh, less steroids. Uh, we've also demonstrated that the drug is safe. Um, and we are moving forward. Um, and really now the therapy that is the furthest along, perhaps worldwide and closest to being approved. We still have some work to do to confirm these findings in a larger study. But we are very, very excited at ATIRE to progress to the next stage uh, with a therapy that um, we hope eventually uh, can get approved uh, once, once we show that in the, in the next trial. All right. Sanjay Shukla, CEO of Atire Pharma, thank you for joining me on the Sark Fighter podcast. Thanks so much, John. I feel like a zombie, just feeding and stumbling. So thanks to Dr. Sanjay Shukla for the interview. If you want to hear the original interview where we took that deep dive into how 1923 works at a time when we really didn't know if it was going to work, uh, please go back and listen to episode 17. That was my first interview with uh, Sanjay, Dr. Sanjay Shukla. And there will be a link to that in the show notes so you don't have to do such an exhaustive search through our website. Um, but there are here are the takeaways for me. I've got 10. I'll do this really quickly. If the drug lives up to its promise, it'll be the biggest development yet in the fight against sarcoidosis. At this point, on this day, at this time, I think we can say that. Number two, it can reduce our need for prednisone, and you all know how dreadful life on prednisone can be. Number three, it actually improves patients' breathing as opposed to just slowing the worsening of lung function. Patients actually get better on this drug, at least so far. There appears to be no side effects. That's number four. Number five, there's no indication the body's immune system develop, develops an, an, an immunity or an ability to fight off the drug, which can often happen with drugs in the uh, category called biologics. Um, number six, people just plain feel better. Take away all the medical terminology and patients just walking around living their everyday lives said, you know what? I just I just feel better. Uh, quality of life improved, and that's a huge takeaway. Number seven, it may be effective in fighting other similar diseases. Very premature, but it, it may. All right. Number eight, uh, we're not there yet. A bigger study and perhaps a worldwide study, as you heard Dr. Shukla say, needs to be undertaken. The results analyzed and then, only then, can ATIRE pitch it to the FDA for approval. And once the FDA approves it, then, then there's the potential for us to have this drug available for our own treatment. Number nine, you heard Sanjay say things like 2024, 2025 as the, maybe the times when uh, if everything goes according to plan, the drug might be available. So number nine is don't throw your prednisone away yet, unfortunately. And number 10, we should note that the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research has played a role in helping to get this and other similar projects launched. Uh, these other projects, of course, not as far along yet. 
but in terms of getting them off the ground, that's one of the things the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research does. Okay, a couple of other notes. Please don't forget to go back and listen to the bonus episode on sarcoidosis and COVID because I think that's still relevant. There's also another bonus episode on dealing with prednisone, and Dr. Shukla was one of the panelists. I moderated that roundtable discussion. Uh, These were, as you've heard me say before, rare opportunities where all the top experts in the field were in the same room at the same time, and we got to ask them questions about sarcoidosis and COVID, and now they're talking about the third shot, for instance, Um, and I, I don't have the answer as to whether you should get a third shot, but I know that this is one of the types of things that's coming up with COVID right now is, okay, I'm immune suppressed. Am I in that group that's supposed to get the third shot? So, And I will get an answer for you on that as soon as I can find someone to answer it definitively. But even the government experts can't agree. But the bottom line is, is that COVID is still relevant. And we did have a roundtable on that. And again, I'll make it easy by putting links in the show notes so you don't have to do this exhaustive search. Please send me an email. It's in the show notes, carlinagency at gmail.com. Follow The Sark Fighter on Instagram and on Facebook. And I do appreciate your interest in the podcast. If you'd like to be on the podcast, please email me and tell me your story. And we'll talk about it. And whether you're a caregiver, a patient, a researcher, no matter how you come to the sarcoidosis space, I would like to hear what you have to say and to evaluate the possibility of you coming on. If you like this podcast, please tell just one person, uh, share it on your social media and let people know about the Sark Fighter podcast and give it a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Dr. Sanjay Shukla for appearing here and more importantly for all of his hard work in moving forward the uh, evidence and the case for Atire 1923. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday Learn endurance, your strength will fade away Dead man walking, trying to keep up the pace Dead man